Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. The Germans make everything difficult for themselves and for everyone else. So said Goethe, the great German poet. Whether it's producing cars or managing their public finances, Germany holds itself to very high standards and expects others to do the same. That's made things tough for businesses trying to compete with German exports. President Trump, we know, gets very cross with the number of German cars on American streets. But it's worked out very well for the Germans, or it has until recently. Now that famous German model is being questioned inside and outside of Germany. I'm going to talk about it with Bloomberg star economic columnist Ferdinando Giuliano in a minute. I'm also going to catch up with the Frankfurt team on Germany's chances of running the European Central Bank. But first, Eurozone economy reporter Catherine Bosley has this report. She starts with a blast from the past that's going to really irritate President Trump. How the man who drives a snowplow drives to the snowplow? This one drives a Volkswagen. So you can stop wondering. That's a classic Volkswagen TV commercial from 1964. It reminds us that through all the decades, one thing has remained constant about Germany's economy. Engineering prowess. After all, it was here that the first combustion engine vehicle was invented more than a century ago. Today, the country is synonymous with famous brands like Volkswagen, Mercedes and Siemens, and manufacturing accounts for over 20% of the economy. Old-school engineering for export has been Germany's recipe for success until now. So much so that the country's trade surplus in dollar terms is second only to China's among major economies. Now that model is under threat, thanks to today's reality of protectionism and slowing global growth. Add to that factors like Germany's aging population and creaky infrastructure due to years of underinvestment, and you've got a big question mark hanging over an economy that for years has been Europe's powerhouse. These are the sounds of the factory floor at ABM Papst, a company I recently visited in Mulfingen, in the rolling hills of southern Germany. It has got 15,000 employees in factories from the Black Forest region nearby, all the way to China. The company makes motors and fans. Some are for building ventilation systems or trains while others are used to cool the electrical systems in cars or even help keep seats comfortable, so you don't sweat when you're driving. IBM Papst CEO Stefan Brandl said his business is doing okay thanks to its focus on energy efficiency, but he's well aware of issues that the whole factory sector is facing. Especially if you are living in a kind of a remote area like we are here in Mulfingen, Um, Certainly there is a big challenge on getting uh, skilled workers 
um, for our different um, manufacturing parts of our business. And then, of course, also uh, digitalization, if it is concerned, there is also um, an infrastructure in Germany, which in my opinion is absolutely not appropriate. Car makers in particular are in for a big shift because engines are going electric. Volkswagen has hatched the most aggressive electric car plans in the auto industry, while BMW and Daimler are merging their car sharing services to tackle the likes of Uber. The automotive sector is investing 60 billion euros, or about 67 billion dollars, over the next three years in electric cars and automated driving, according to VDA, an industry association. Unfortunately, the most profitable segments and the most profitable models are precisely the ones which will generate the biggest problems in a regulatory sense because they're going to be high-emission petrol and diesel cars. That's Peter Wells, a professor at Cardiff Business School in the UK, who studies global auto manufacturing. And the trouble, therefore, that the industry faces over the next two or three years is the looming threat of government regulation, EU regulation on CO2 emissions, which is going to make it very, very difficult for them to, to continue to generate profits whilst investing heavily into these new technologies. The strains on the economy are undeniable. Manufacturing and exports play a much greater role for Germany than neighboring France, for example. Growth in 2019 is forecast to be the weakest in six years. According to Economy Minister Peter Altmaier, the economy's current soft patch is a wake-up call. But the problems are to some degree homemade, with the German government for years focusing on reducing debt rather than investing in the future. At least, that's the view of Adam Posen, who has studied Germany extensively and is president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. There's been a complete shortfall of investment, first private sector, but in recent years, public investment. And this is marked that an economy which is doing so well in terms of employment, in terms of generating surpluses, is not finding uses for all the capital it throws off, at least not at home. And the underinvestment by the public sector is, stands out and is a choice. And it's frankly a bad choice. It's showing up now in the power grid. It's showing up now in transportation. It's showing up in the schools. I mean, when I lived in Germany in the early 90s and used to go back and forth all the time, you know, one thing you could count on was the punctuality of German trains and planes. And now that's not there. This past winter, the government in Berlin proposed an industrial strategy in response to fears that Germany will get squeezed by the U.S. and China as the global economy shifts to new technologies. The program calls for defending the country's leadership in key sectors like metals and machinery and investing in technologies such as artificial intelligence, which the report calls likely the most important development since the steam engine. In Posen's eyes, this plan is a non-starter. What Germany really needs is better use of available labor, deregulation of its service sector and infrastructure investment, he says. Just invest a few percent more of GDP at home 
on things that matter for German well-being, and that will lift all boats. My colleague Chris Reiter in Berlin spoke to labor union IG Metall, which has 2.2 million members. They say not enough is being done to help retrain older workers for evolving jobs and have scheduled a demonstration in June to highlight their predicament. Let's hear from board member Uwe Meinhardt. All our members will be affected in the one kind or the other, today or tomorrow. Everyone will be affected of this transformation, of digitalization, of electrifying in the automotive industry and other transformations. Nothing will rest as it is today. So we have to face these uh, huge dimension of transformation. So that's the problem that many employees as well as many managers just want circumstances to stay as they are now. It won't work. Um, who refuses the change today may be jobless tomorrow. The union is calling for Germany's notoriously tight-fisted government to increase investment in physical and digital infrastructure and training employees for the skills and jobs of tomorrow. Still, Germany has a long track record of adapting. It emerged from the ashes of World War II to become Europe's leading economy, and the integration of the communist East after the fall of the Berlin Wall has largely been successful. Germany's labor force is skilled, and its education system includes several institutions of international renown. Ultimately, it may be a question of both economics and politics. For the government in Berlin, Germany's industrial sector may simply be too big to fail. The uncertainty has filtered through to voters already, as one can see from the rise of the populist AFD party, and will definitely preoccupy whoever succeeds Merkel as chancellor. Here is how Peter Wells of Cardiff Business School put it. The transition, I think, has to happen at a manufacturing level first and foremost, and we're beginning to see that. that companies like Volkswagen are investing heavily in Industry 4.0 uh, and related themes. If they can do that, then there's a chance that they can push productivity much, much higher, and that will enable them to continue to survive as manufacturers in a high-cost location. But, of course, there is a downside, and that downside is reduced jobs. You know, companies like Volkswagen are already talking about uh, taking headcount out of their manufacturing operations, and, and that reduces their bargaining power politically. So it, it's a very difficult place to be in right now. I'm Catherine Bosley for Bloomberg News. Now, I'm very glad to say I'm now joined down the line by Ferdinando Giuliano, the Bloomberg economic columnist. Ferdinando, you and I have been around in uh, economics for long enough to know that there's these, we often have rounds of questioning about the German model. You know, I remember in the 90s, there was talk of the sick man of Europe being Germany. Do you think this is a, a, a real this round of questioning is really serious or is it just a little bit of angst? Well, I think it is pretty serious. I mean, you've mentioned uh, what happened at the end of the 90s. I think that was certainly more serious. And that's why the government of Gerhard Schröder introduced a number of very important labor market reforms, which really uh, helped growth in the coming decade and more. 
But I think, at, and I think at this stage, where there are still more question marks than answers. I mean, as we know, the German economy has been slowing quite sharply at the end of last year. In the second half, there was it nearly fell into a, a technical recession. It's now bounced back in the first quarter of of this year by growing by 0.4 percent on a quarterly basis. But I think there are still some questions over really uh, the long-term uh, future of the country. And some of the question marks are actually pretty striking. I mean, one has obviously got to do with trade. The other one is the future of the car industry. And then there is the issue of the banking industry, which is really uh, come back to the fore after the failed uh, merger between Commerzbank and Deutsche Bank. So a number of question marks there for uh, uh, the politicians not yet dramatic, but you know they still need to come up. They, they they need to come up with some answers pretty quickly, I think. And do you see? I mean, we have a, a government that's a, got a little bit different complexion now. At least for those of us looking at the economic policies, we have a finance minister Olaf Scholz, who's has is of a different character from uh, his predecessor, who was what you might call a very characteristic in his economic policies. You know, he was the one uh, Wolfgang Schäuble who would was. Ex- was didn't really believe in uh, Greece being in the eurozone and gave it a really tough time during the eurozone crisis you know was associated with a lot of those uh, uh, policies that we do associate with Germany you know tough fiscal policy and still wanting to have that very strong export performance and a reluctance to have a lot more public investment something that was highlighted by Catherine in that piece do you see with this different finance minister a slightly different government um that we will have is there's a more of an openness to this kind of change, like more public investment, for example? Well, I think we've seen a little bit of a shift, to be honest, to the fiscal policies turned mildly expansionary over the last uh, few months. Uh, but there are still, you know, big questions. I mean, if you have a slowing economy and you are uh, running a budget surplus and your debt is very low and actually <laughs> investors are willing to give you uh, money at negative nominal rates, why, why are you not investing more? I think these questions are still there. What's interesting is that I think is that the debate is starting to shift a little bit precisely because the economy is not doing so well. I mean, uh, it's all well and good to kind of run a very tight fiscal policy if the economy is still growing. I mean, of course, it could be growing more. Your productivity could uh, be boosted by more public investment. But, you know, it's harder to make a public case for uh, more spending. At this juncture, I think it's harder to sustain uh, the fiscal, you know, the case for fiscal discipline um, at the moment. So I think that that change in the debate is very, very interesting. Now, of course, Olaf Scholz uh, on his own uh, does not mean uh, very much because uh, clearly, you know, we need to understand what's going through the mind of uh, AKK, the successor to Angela Merkel, who's going through a a difficult uh, period to establish herself. And we don't really know what her economic policy thinking is deep down. So I think uh, there are still a question. I would like to add one more thing. Yes, Olaf Scholz has been uh, a good shift in terms, brought a good shift in terms of fiscal policy. But there is stuff going on in terms of industrial policy and banking policy, which I think is a little bit more suspicious. Germany is going back to the kind of good old way, you know, to the kind of marrying the French approach to industrial policy against competition policy. Olaf Scholz was a supporter of this national champion idea in the banking industry. Well, all of that is something which I think, uh, as an economist, I'm quite worried about. You know, when you step back from these debates, and obviously, you know, we look at what happens to German GDP, you know, week to week or month to month, or quarter to quarter. But 
Over the years, uh, Germany's often been criticised for uh, being a bit too successful at exporting, not saving too much, its households saved save too much, not taking enough risks. And, and these all have a feel of being pretty long-term characteristics of Germany. Is, what's, what's the odds of it really changing? I mean, it's always been said, I think, that the German people, German households spend more on flowers every year than they do on shares. You know, is that really going to change? Well, I think what's changing is the landscape. I mean, you were talking about uh, the trading surpluses, which Germany has been recording throughout the years, and this model, which is really based on exports. I mean, uh, what's changing is the landscape. What we have is this nowadays, you know, not even not, no longer a trade skirmish, but an outright trade war, it would seem, between the U.S. and China. Uh, the U.S. Uh, is being very confrontational with uh, with Europe, threatening uh, to slap tariffs on uh, uh, cars, which is Germany, by the way. So uh, I think in this shifting landscape where globalization is at risk, uh, global commerce is at risk, uh, the model which uh, Germany has, um, you know, established and which has been, you know, to be fair, very successful uh, over the past few years of uh, rising globalization and, uh, um, you know, strong world trade is increasingly at risk. And so even though, you know, us as, some, you know, us as economists have been uh, doubtful of this model for some time, but, you know, the, the, the kind of the man on, on the street wasn't really seeing the, the, the problem with it because, you know, after all, unemployment was very low and uh, um, the economy was doing fine. But now uh, that these risks are rising and are actually there present and are taking a hit on economic growth, I think politicians will start asking themselves some hard questions because, hey, uh, you know, maybe Donald Trump will disappear in a few years and we will go back to the good old days of globalization. But what if we don't? How will Germany uh, keep growing? How will it keep giving prosperity to its people? That's a real question which uh, politicians uh, need to ask themselves. And Germany's been so dominant in Europe, in the Eurozone, over the last um, 10, 20 years. What does it mean for Europe if it's now going through a phase of, of being on the defensive and a bit insecure in its economic model? Well, I think paradoxically, from a certain point of view, um, a slightly weaker uh, German economy uh, could be uh, interesting from a political point of view because it may make Germany a little bit more understanding towards some form of expansionary policies, especially fiscal policies, which um, Germany has traditionally been sceptical of. I mean, we've heard you're many times... You're that, confirming some of the paranoia that the Germans themselves have, that the other countries are just willing for them to fail when you say that. Oh, yes. No, I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> I was more thinking about their, their own domestic um, policy and the repercussions for the for the Eurozone. In terms of the broader debate, I mean, frankly, uh, it's been stuck for, uh, if, uh, you know, at least a year and a half now. I mean, after the election of President Emmanuel Macron and the idea that there would be a, a grand bargain between France and Germany, uh, there was some enthusiasm about the reform of the Eurozone and uh, uh, making sure that those other building blocks, uh, especially, for example, in setting up some form of joint fiscal capacity, or completing the banking union project, which has been advancing for some time, and then it stalled, where there was hope that this could happen. But at the moment, everything has stalled. And I suspect that the rise of uh, some populist governments, um, for example, in Italy, which uh, you know, are taking very irresponsible attitude towards economic policy making, is going to make 
the German public uh, just more defensive. Um, and another big question, I think, is over uh, the European Central Bank. Mario Draghi has been an extraordinarily effective, not just in implementing policy, but also in selling it to the German politicians, especially Angela Merkel. But we now his term is coming. We know his term is coming to an end at the end of October. Who will replace him? And will this person be just as effective in terms of making the ECB, you know, a, a powerful tool in fighting slowdowns, recessions? Um, or are we going back to less effective uh, presidents? This is another uh, big question. And of course, you know, Jens Weidmann, the president of the Bundesbank, is one of the leading candidates. So uh, will we see a more Germanic uh, monetary policy in the Eurozone? Uh, and what, what would that mean for, uh, for the currency union? Uh, well, you know, this is, this is a big uh, uh, doubt, which I think uh, many investors will want to ponder on. Well, and I'm very glad you mentioned that, Ferdinando, because uh, I'm going to be talking about that in a second, getting the latest on that horse race um, to run the European Central Bank um, just after uh, talking to you. But Ferdinando Giuliano, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Well, I mentioned with Fernando there the battle to see who's going to replace Mario Draghi, the Italian who's been running the European Central Bank for the last eight years. And I wanted to check in with Paul Gordon, who runs our central bank team out of Frankfurt on it. Paul, the Germany's never had uh, one of its nationals run the European Central Bank. Is this its moment? Well, the head of the Bundesbank, Jens Weidmann, is a contender, but it is a very wide open field, wider than we've ever seen, really. Um, he's up against, uh, at least according to our surveys, two Frenchmen, uh, the head of the French Central Bank and, the, uh, and one of the executive board members, and two Finns, the current head of the Finnish Central Bank and the former head of the Finnish Central Bank. It's very hard at this point to see uh, whether Germany will have what it takes to win the political support to get Jens Weidmann into the position. Now, if you were an outsider uh, looking at the Eurozone, uh, particularly if you're in, sitting working in the financial markets in New York, say, what you really care about who runs the European Central Bank is whether they'll support growth in Europe and whether they'll be able to do the right thing in a crisis. Is there any chance that the right person's going to be in the job for either of those things? Well, that is where the uh, the German um, uh, nomination, should Jens Weidmann be that nominee, is uh, potentially the problem because Weidmann has been an opponent of a lot of the ECB's um, crisis-era measures in the past. You have to remember that Mario Draghi, although he was something of a controversial candidate when he came in eight years ago, um, pledged in 2012 to do whatever it takes and the market believed him and he's continued to make these um, pledges and to come up with fairly original measures in order to try to get inflation back on track. It's not there yet and the economy is showing signs of stuttering. So you have to wonder whether the next ECB president, if they haven't supported some of those measures, as Vibrant hasn't, will have the credibility to get the job done. And the credibility matters. It has an impact on the markets. It has an Im impact on inflation expectations. So that's the biggest challenge for Germany, one has to say. And you've mentioned there some of those sort of key phrases that came out of Mario Draghi. I mean, is that why it does really matter 
who runs this organisation. It's not, you know, some people will say, well, it's just one vote on men, of many on the council. Uh, it doesn't doesn't matter who's in that job. It matters how the council vote goes. Goes. But then, if we look at something like the Fed, we know that you know it does matter who's chairman of the Fed, even though technically the Fed chair only has one vote. Is that also the case in the European Central Bank? I mean, remember we've we've got a lot of countries represented around the table. It's not just those you know regional banks that you have represented in the US. No, I mean, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the governing council chamber in the European Central Bank is a very crowded place. There are 25 policymakers, 19 central bank governors, six board members. But it, the board does have undue influence, if you like. It has much more influence than the others. Yes, there's one vote per person. doesn't normally come to a vote in the governing council. Uh, a consensus is reached, and that consensus is heavily swayed by whatever proposal the executive board has put on the table for everyone to discuss. So the president, as one of those board members, matters. So does the chief economist. That currently is Peter Pret, but that changes as well. As of 1st of June, Philip Lane of Ireland will come in. And also another influential figure is Benoit Curé. He's the head of market operations. He leaves at the end of the year, though, as I say, he is potentially one of the contenders to replace Mario Draghi. So uh, it's, it's not really one vote per person. It doesn't quite work that way. Well, and you've mentioned something that I think we're going to come back to in the next uh, few weeks on the podcast, the fact that you've got so many senior jobs changing hands in Europe, three of the key uh, European Central Bank jobs changing hands in 12 months, but also all of the European Commission jobs and everything else. It's a mess. It's a whole, There's a lot of uh, horse trading going on. Look, I'm going to put you on the spot, Paul. Uh, who do you think it's going to be and when do you think we're going to find out on the, or just on the ECB president job? Yeah, it's, it's quite a confluence of events. I mean, the, uh, the political posts tend to last for five years, the ECB ones for eight years. So only once every 40 years, any student of maths will tell you, do you get that coincidence. So it could take some time. Um, it may not be resolved until shortly before, potentially, uh, every, the uh, ECB president uh, post uh, expires at the end of October. Um, as for who it is, well, I'll give you uh, two basic assumptions most people are making. It's probably going to be a Northern European, although uh, you would have to include France in that mix. Uh, not everybody sees France as Northern European, but uh, it's it's in with a shot of a chance. France and has also, been deciding for yeah, a while whether it's a Southern it, European or a North and European. And still isn't there. Exactly right. And the, the second point is it's very, very unlikely to be a woman. Well, that is definitely true when you look at who's in leadership positions across central banks across Europe. Oh, for shame. Thank you very much, Paul. I know what is going to continue, this horse race is going to produce lots of great stories for us. And we do have that ongoing poll you mentioned of economists of uh, who they think's um, going to replace Mario Draghi, which involves a nice graphic with little bouncy heads, which I gather is quite popular in uh, the corridors of Frankfurt uh, in the central bank as well. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. Come back next week for more on-the-ground insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more people. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at MyStephanomics. The story in this episode was reported and written by Catherine Bosley and Chris Reiter. Helmuth Trom assisted. It was produced by Magnus Henriksen and edited by Scott Lamman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Chris and Catherine's original article on this topic was edited by David Rocks. 
Special thanks to Ferdinando Giuliano in Milan, Agatha Crantrell in Berlin and Paul Gordon in Frankfurt. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.